Red Hawk Radio Theater proudly presents The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Final Problem, by Arthur Conan Doyle. It is with a heavy heart that I take up my pen to write these last words in which I shall ever record the singular gifts by which my friend Mr. Sherlock Holmes was distinguished. It lies with me to tell for the first time what really took place between Professor Moriarty and Mr. Sherlock Holmes. It may be remembered that after my marriage and my subsequent start in private practice, the very intimate relations which had existed between Holmes and myself became to some extent modified. He still came to me from time to time when he desired a companion in his investigation, but these occasions grew more and more seldom. It was with some surprise, therefore, that I saw him walk into my consulting room upon the evening of April 24th. It struck me that he was looking even paler and thinner than usual. Yes, I have been using myself up rather too freely. Have you any objection to my closing your shutters? You are afraid of something? Well, I am. Of what? Of air guns. My dear Holmes, what do you mean? I think that you know me well enough, Watson, to understand that I am by no means a nervous man. At the same time, it is stupidity rather than courage to refuse to recognize danger when it is close upon you. Might I trouble you for a match? I must apologize for calling so late, and I must further beg you to be so unconventional as to allow me to leave your house presently by scrambling over your back garden wall. But what does it all mean? He held out his hand, and I saw in the light of the lamp that two of his knuckles were burst and bleeding. It is not an airy nothing, you see. On the contrary, it is solid enough for a man to break his hand over. Is your husband in? He is away on business. Indeed. You're alone. Quite. Then it makes it easier for me to propose that you should come away with me for a week to the continent. Where? Oh, anywhere. It's all the same to me. There was something very strange in all this. It was not Holmes's nature to take an aimless holiday, and something about his pale, worn face told me that his nerves were at their highest tension. You have probably never heard of Professor Moriarty? Never. Aye. There's the genius and the wonder of the thing. The woman pervades London and no one has heard of her. That's what puts her on a pinnacle in the records of crime. I tell you, Watson, in all seriousness, that if I could beat that woman, if I could free society of her, I should feel that my own career had reached its summit and I should be prepared to turn to some more placid line in life. But I could not rest. Watson, I could not sit quiet in my chair if I thought that such a woman as Professor Moriarty were walking the streets of London unchallenged. What has she done, then? Her career has been an extraordinary one. At the age of 21, she wrote a treatise upon the binomial theorem. On the strength of it, she won the mathematical chair at one of our smaller universities and had, to all appearances, a most brilliant career before her. But the woman had hereditary tendencies of the most diabolical kind. A criminal strain ran in her blood, which, instead of being modified, was increased and rendered infinitely more dangerous by her extraordinary mental powers. Dark rumors gathered round her, and eventually she was compelled to resign her chair. So much is known to the world, but what I am telling you now is what I have myself discovered. As you are aware, Watson, there is no one who knows the higher criminal world of London so well as I do. 
For years past, I have been conscious of some deep organizing power which forever stands in the way of law. I have continually endeavored to break through the veil which shrouded it, and at last the time came when I seized my thread and followed it until it led me to ex-Professor Moriarty. She is the Napoleon of crime, Watson. She sits motionless like a spider in the center of its web. But that web has a thousand radiations, and she knows well every quiver of each of them. She does little herself. She only plans. But her agents are numerous and splendidly organized. The agent may be caught, but the central power which uses the agent is never so much as suspected. This was the organization which I deduced, Watson, and which I devoted my whole energy to exposing and breaking up. But the professor was fenced round with safeguards so cunningly devised that it seemed impossible to get evidence which would convict in a court of law. You know my powers, dear Watson, and yet at the end of three months I was forced to confess that I had at last met an antagonist who was my intellectual equal. But at last she made a trip, only a little, little trip, but it was more than she could afford when I was so close upon her. In three days the professor, with all the principal members of her gang, will be in the hands of the police. I tell you, my friend, that if a detailed account of that silent contest could be written, it would take its place as the most brilliant bit of thrust and parry work in the history of detection. Never have I risen to such a height, and never have I been so hard-pressed by an opponent. This morning the last steps were taken, and three days only were wanted to complete the business. I was sitting in my room, thinking the matter over, when the door opened and Professor Moriarty stood before me. My nerves are fairly proof, Watson, but I must confess to a start when I saw the very woman who had been so much in my thoughts standing there on my threshold. Her appearance was quite familiar to me. She is extraordinarily tall and thin, and her two eyes are deeply sunken in her head. Her shoulders are rounded from much study, and her face is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. You have less frontal development than I should have expected. It is a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. At her remark, I drew the weapon out and laid it cocked upon the table. You evidently don't know me. On the contrary, I think it is fairly evident that I do. Pray take a chair. I can spare you five minutes if you have anything to say. All that I have to say has already crossed your mind. Then possibly my answer has crossed yours. You stand fast? Absolutely. She clapped her hand into her pocket and I raised the pistol from the table but she merely drew out a memorandum book in which she had scribbled some dates. You crossed my path on the 4th of January. On the 23rd, you incommoded me. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you, and at the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now, at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position, through your continual persecution, that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is becoming an impossible one. Have you any suggestion to make? You must drop it, Mr. Holmes. You really must, you know. After Monday. (laughs) 
I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this affair, and I say, unaffectedly, that this would be a great grief to me to be forced to take any extreme measure. You smile, sir, but I assure you that it really would. Danger is part of my trade. That is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but a mighty organization, the full extent of which you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. I am afraid that, in the pleasure of this conversation, I am neglecting business of importance which awaits me elsewhere. It seems a pity, but I have done what I could. I know every move of your game. You can do nothing before Monday. It has been a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to beat me? I tell you that you will never beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction upon me, rest assured that I shall do as much to you. You have paid me several compliments, Miss Moriarty. Let me pay you one in return when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interests of the public, cheerfully accept the latter. I can promise you the one, but not the other. That was my singular interview with Professor Moriarty. Of course, you will say, why not take police precautions against her? The reason is that I am well convinced that it is from her agents the blow will fall. I have the best proofs that it would be so. You have already been assaulted. My dear Watson, Professor Moriarty is not a woman who lets the grass grow under her feet. I went out about midday to transact some business. As I passed the corner which leads from Bentick Street on to the Welbeck Street crossing, a two-horse van, furiously driven, whizzed round It was on me like a flash. I sprang for the footpath and saved myself by the fraction of a second. I kept to the pavement after that, Watson, but as I walked down Veer Street, a brick came down from the roof of one of the houses and was shattered to fragments at my feet. I called the police and had the place examined. There were slates and bricks piled up on the roof preparatory to some repairs, and they would have me believe that the wind had toppled over one of these. Of course, I knew better, but I could prove nothing. I took a cab after that and reached my brother's rooms in Paul Mall, where I spent the day. Now I have come round to you, and on my way I was attacked by a rough with a bludgeon. I knocked him down, and the police have him in custody. But I can tell you with the most absolute confidence that no possible connection will ever be traced between the gentleman upon whose front teeth I have barked my knuckles and the retiring mathematical coach who is, I dare say, working out problems upon a blackboard ten miles away. You will spend the night here? No, my friend, you might find me a dangerous guest. I have my plans laid, and all will be well. Matters have gone so far now that they can move without my help as far as the arrest goes, though my presence is necessary for a conviction. It is obvious, therefore, that I cannot do better than get away for the few days which remain before the police are at liberty to act. It would be a great pleasure to me, therefore, if you could come on to the continent with me. The practice is quiet, and I have an accommodating neighbour. I should be glad to come. And to start tomorrow morning? If necessary. Oh, yes, it is most necessary. Then these are your instructions, and I beg, my dear Watson, that you will obey them to the letter. Now listen. 
You will dispatch whatever luggage you intend to take by a trusty messenger unaddressed to Victoria tonight. In the morning, you will send for a hansom, desiring your man to take neither the first nor the second which may present itself. Into this hansom you will jump, and you will drive to the strand end of the Lothar Arcade, handing the address to the cabman upon a slip of paper with a request that he will not throw it away. Have your fare ready, and the instant that your cab stops, dash through the arcade, timing yourself to reach the other side at a quarter past nine. You will find a small brougham waiting close to the curb, driven by a fellow with a heavy black cloak tipped at the collar with red. Into this you will step, and you will reach Victoria in time for the Continental Express. Where shall I meet you? At the station. The second first-class carriage from the front will be reserved for us. The carriage is our rendezvous, then? Yes. It was in vain that I asked Holmes to remain for the evening. It was evident to me that he thought he might bring trouble to the roof he was under, and that that was the motive which impelled him to go. With a few hurried words as to our plans for the morrow, he rose and came out with me into the garden, clambering over the wall which leads into Mortimer Street, and immediately whistling for a hansom, in which I heard him drive away. In the morning I obeyed Holmes's injunctions to the letter. Upon to the point when I reached the station, all had gone admirably. My only source of anxiety now was the non-appearance of Holmes. The station clock marked only seven minutes from the time when we were due to start. In vain I searched among the groups of travellers and leave-takers for my friend. There was no sign of him. I spent a few minutes in assisting a venerable Italian priest who was endeavouring to make a porter understand in his broken English that his luggage was to be booked through to Paris. Then, having taken another look round, I returned to my carriage, where I found that the porter, in spite of the ticket, had given me my decrepit Italian friend as a travelling companion. It was useless for me to explain to him that his presence was an intrusion, for my Italian was even more limited than his English, so I shrugged my shoulders resignedly and continued to look out anxiously for my friend. A chill of fear had come over me, as I thought that his absence might mean that some blow had fallen during the night. My dear Watson, you have not even condescended to say good morning. I turned in uncontrollable astonishment. The Italian had turned his face towards me. For an instant the wrinkles were smoothed away, the dull eyes regained their fire, the drooping figure expanded. The next the whole frame collapsed again, and Holmes had gone as quickly as he had come. Good heavens! How you startled me! Every precaution is still necessary. I have reason to think that they are hot upon our trail. Ah, there is Moriarty herself. Glancing back, I saw a tall woman pushing her way furiously through the crowd and waving her hand as if she desired to have the train stopped. It was too late, however, for we were rapidly gathering momentum and an instant later had shot clear of the station. With all our precautions, you see that we have cut it rather fine. He rose, throwing off his disguise, and packing it away in a handbag. Have you seen the morning paper, Watson? No. You haven't seen about Baker Street, then? Baker Street? They set fire to our rooms last night. No great harm was done. Good heavens, Holmes! This is intolerable! They must have lost my track completely after their bludgeon man was arrested. Otherwise, they could not have imagined that I had returned to my rooms. They have evidently taken the precaution of watching you, however, and that is what has brought Moriarty to Victoria. 
You could not have made any slip in coming? I did exactly what you advised. Did you find your brougham? Yes, it was waiting. Did you recognize your coachman? No. It was my brother Mycroft. It is an advantage to get about in such a case without taking a mercenary into your confidence. But we must plan what we are to do about Moriarty now. As this is an express, and as the boat runs in connection with it, I should think we have shaken her off very effectively. (laughs) My dear Watson, you evidently did not realize my meaning when I said that this woman may be taken as being quite on the same intellectual plane as myself. You do not imagine that if I were the pursuer I should allow myself to be baffled by so slight an obstacle. Why then should you think so meanly of her? What will she do? What I should do? What would you do then? Engage is special. But it must be late. <laughs> By no means. This train stops at Canterbury, and there is always at least a quarter of an hour's delay at the boat. She will catch us there. One would think that we were the criminals. Let us have her arrested on her arrival. Yeah, it would be to ruin the work of three months. We should get the big fish, but the smaller would dart right and left out of the net. No. An arrest is inadmissible. What then? We shall get out at Canterbury. And then? Well, then we must make a cross-country journey to Newhaven, and so over to Deep. Moriarty will again do what I should do. She will get on to Paris, mark down our luggage, and wait for two days at the depot. In the meantime, we shall treat ourselves to a couple of carpet bags and make our way at our leisure into Switzerland. At Canterbury, therefore, we alighted, only to find that we should have to wait an hour before we could get a train to Newhaven. Already, you see. There she goes. There are limits, you see, to our friend's intelligence. It would have been a coup had she deduced what I would deduce and acted accordingly. And what would she have done had she overtaken us? There cannot be the least doubt that she would have made a murderous attack upon me. It is, however, a game at which two may play. We made our way to Brussels that night and spent two days there, moving on upon the third day as far as Strasbourg. On the Monday morning, Holmes had telegraphed the London police, and in the evening we found a reply waiting for us at our hotel. I might have known it. She's escaped. Moriarty? They have secured the whole gang with the exception of her. She's given them the slip. I think that you had better return to England, Watson. Why? Because you will find me a dangerous companion now. This woman's occupation is gone. She is lost if she returns to London. If I read her character right, she will devote her whole energies to revenging herself upon me. She said as much in our short interview, and I fancy that she meant it. I should certainly recommend you to return to your practice. It was hardly an appeal to be successful with one who was an old campaigner as well as an old friend. We had a lovely trip, but it was clear to me that never for one instant in Holmes forget the shadow which lay across him. In the homely alpine villages, or in the lonely mountain passes, I could tell by his quick glancing eyes and his sharp scrutiny of every face that passed us that he was well convinced that, walk where he would, we could not walk ourselves clear of the danger which was dogging our footsteps. Once, I remember... A large rock which had been dislodged from the ridge upon our right clattered down and roared into the lake behind us. In an instant, Holmes had raced up onto the ridge and, standing upon a lofty pinnacle, craned his neck in every direction. It was in vain that our guide assured him that a fall of stones was a common chance in the springtime at that spot, 
but he smiled at me with the air of a man who sees the fulfillment of that which he had expected. And yet, for all his watchfulness, he was never depressed. I think that I may go so far as to say, Watson, that I have not lived wholly in vain. If my record were closed tonight, I could still survey it with equanimity. The air of London is the sweeter for my presence. In over a thousand cases, I am not aware that I have ever used my powers upon the wrong side. Your memoirs will draw to an end, Watson, upon the day that I crown my career by the capture or extinction of the most dangerous and capable criminal in Europe. I shall be brief, and yet exact, in the little which remains for me to tell. It is not a subject on which I would willingly dwell. It was on the 3rd of May that we reached the little village of Myringen. Our landlady was an intelligent woman and spoke excellent English, having served for three years at the Grosvenor Hotel in London. At her advice, on the afternoon of the 4th, we set off together with the intention of crossing the hills. We had strict injunctions, however, on no account to pass the falls of Reichenbach, which are about halfway upon the hill, without making a small detour to see them. It is, indeed, a fearful place. The torrent, swollen by the melting snow, plunges into a tremendous abyss from which the spray rolls up like the smoke from a burning house, the long sweep of green water roaring forever down, and the thick, flickering curtain of spray hissing forever upward, turn a man giddy with their constant whirl and clamour. We stood near the edge, peering down at the gleam of the breaking water far below us against the black rocks. The path ends abruptly, and the traveller has to return as he came. We had turned to do so when we saw a Swiss lad come running along it with a letter in his hand. It bore the mark of the hotel which we had just left. It appeared that within a very few minutes of our leaving, an English lady had arrived who was in the last stage of consumption. It was thought that she could hardly live a few hours, but it would be a great consolation to her to see an English doctor, and, if I would only return, etc., the appeal was one which could not be ignored. It was impossible to refuse the request of a fellow countrywoman dying in a strange land. Yet I had my scruples about leaving Holmes. It was finally agreed that he should retain the young Swiss messenger with him as guide. As I turned away I saw Holmes, with his back against a rock and his arms folded, gazing down at the rush of the waters. It was the last that I was ever destined to see of him in this world. When I was near the bottom of the descent... I looked back. It was impossible, from that position, to see the fall, but I could see the curving path which winds over the shoulder of the hill and leads to it. Along this a woman was, I remember, walking very rapidly. I noted her, and the energy with which she had walked, but she passed from my mind again as I hurried upon my errand. Well, I trust that she is no worse. A look of surprise passed over her face, and at the first quiver of her eyebrows my heart turned to lead in my breast. You do not write this. There is no sick Englishwoman in the hotel. Certainly not, but it has the hotel mark upon it. Ha! It must have been written by that tall Englishwoman who came in after you had gone. But I waited for none of the landlady's explanations. I was already running down the village street and making for the path which I had so lately descended. For all my efforts, two more had passed before I found myself at the fall of Reichenbach once more. There was Holmes's alpine stock still leaning against the rock by which I had left him. But there was no sign of him, and it was in vain that I shouted. My only answer was my own voice reverberating in a rolling echo from the cliffs around me. I stood for a minute or two to collect myself, for I was dazed with the horror of the thing. 
Then I began to think of Holmes's own methods and to try to practice them in reading this tragedy. It was, alas, only too easy to do. During our conversation we had not gone to the end of the path, and the alpine stock marked the place where we had stood. The blackish soil is kept forever soft by the incessant drift of spray, and a bird would leave its tread upon it. Two lines of footmarks were clearly marked along the farther end of the path, both leading away from me. A few yards from the end, the soil was all ploughed up into a patch of mud, and the branches and ferns which fringed the chasm were torn and bedraggled. But it was destined that I should, after all, have a last word of greeting from my friend and comrade. I have said that his alpine stalk had been left leaning against a rock which jutted on to the path. From the top of this boulder, the gleam of something bright caught my eye, and, raising my hand, I found that it came from the silver cigarette case which he used to carry. Indeed, if I may make a full confession to you, I was quite convinced that the letter from Myringen was a hoax, and I allowed you to depart on that errand under the persuasion that some development of this sort would follow. Tell Inspector Patterson that the papers which he needs to convict the gang are in Pigeonhole M., done up in a blue envelope and inscribed Moriarty. I made every disposition of my property before leaving England and handed it to my brother Mycroft. Pray give my greetings to your husband and believe me to be, my dear comrade, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Few words may suffice to tell the little that remains. An examination by experts leaves little doubt that a personal contest between the two ended, as it could hardly fail to end in such a situation, and they're reeling over, locked in each other's arms. Any attempt at recovering the bodies was absolutely hopeless, and there, deep down in that dreadful cauldron of swirling water and seething foam, will lie for all time the most dangerous criminal and the foremost champion of the law of their generation. The Swiss youth was never found again, and there can be no doubt that he was one of the numerous agents whom Moriarty kept in this employ. As to the gang, it will be within the memory of the public how completely the evidence which Holmes had accumulated exposed their organization, and how heavily the hand of the dead woman weighed upon them. All this because of the best and the wisest man whom I have ever known. You've been listening to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Final Problem presented by Red Hawk Radio Theater. Dr. Watson, played by Maggie MacArthur. Sherlock Holmes, played by Jonathan Reynolds. Professor Moriarty, played by Deanna Rubach. Landlady, played by Abby Emmons.